good to see each and every one of you here this morning. You know, the Bible tells us that this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, we had an incredible week of VBS. Thank you for your prayers there. Uh, but today is especially exciting because we get to observe uh, the two ordinances in the church. First, we start uh, with baptism, and then later on, we are going to have the Lord's Supper together. But it's always good to start with the baptism because we know and understand that baptism is a picture of what has gone on on the inside of us when a person comes to faith in Christ. The Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, all things have become new. And that's what has taken place on the inside and is symbolized by baptism. And it is also an identification with our Lord and our Savior, the Lord Jesus himself. When he was crucified and then he was buried and then he was raised again on the third day. So the Lord commands us to be baptized, and it's also a symbol uh, and an expression of our public profession of faith in him. So I know you will celebrate together as we uh, baptize four candidates this morning. Uh, and the first one that we have is Chantel Sears. Chantel, come on down. Chantel came to faith in Christ not very long ago. Uh, but Chantel, do you know that Jesus is Lord and is he the Lord of your life? Yes. Amen. Amen. Then that upon obedience to the Lord's commands and by your testimony of faith this morning, it is my honor and my privilege to baptize you, my sister Chantel, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in the likeness of his death. And raised to walk in the newness of the Christian life. If you're a family member or friend of Chantel, would you please stand this morning? Awesome. Next we have Cameron Robinson. Cameron, come on down. Cameron, in 2017, visited the Billy Graham Library. And at the end of that tour, uh, was asking some questions. And they asked Cameron, do you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior? And he goes, no. And they said, would you like to know him? And he said, yes. And so that day at the Billy Graham Library in 2017, Cameron gave his heart and his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Cameron, is it your confession of faith that Jesus is Lord and he's the Lord of your life? Yes. Amen. Amen. Then upon your profession of faith and in obedience with our Lord's commands, it's my honor to baptize you, my brother Cameron, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Bear with Christ in the likeness of his death, and raised to walk in the newness of the Christian life. If you're a family member or a friend of Cameron, would you please stand as well? Amen. Amen. Next, we have uh, Christina Baker. 
Christina was baptized as an infant, uh, but really didn't start following the Lord until her teenage years and has been following him faithfully, faithfully, faithfully for some time now. So, Christina, is it your profession of faith that Jesus is Lord and he's the Lord of your life? Yes. Amen. Then upon your, upon your profession of faith and in obedience with the Lord's commands, it's my honor and privilege to baptize you, my sister Christina, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in the newness of the Christian life. I think she's going to stand right here and watch her husband, Kyle, come and be baptized this morning. I think I need to go out and do a few push-ups for this one. <laughs> I need to stand on my tiptoes. <laughs> this is going to go good. This is going to go good. Y'all better watch out. They're right there. <laughs> Back in 2019, uh, Kyle's father passed away. Through some of those events, he really started seeking the Lord. And it is during that time that um, the Lord began speaking to him to become one of his children. And so Kyle became a Christian then in 2019. So Kyle, it is, is it your uh, profession of faith that Jesus is Lord and he's the Lord of your life? Absolutely. Amen. Amen. Then upon your profession of faith and in obedience with the Lord's commands, it's my honor and privilege to baptize you, my brother Kyle, in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Bear with Christ in the likeness of his death, and raised to law in the newness of the Christian life. If you're a family member or friend of the Bakers, would you please stand this morning? Right over here. Amen. God bless you. Let's continue to worship the Lord together. You'll notice that uh, Pastor Kevin and Kyle go to the same barber. <laughs> it is good to see each of you here today on, on this Sunday when we celebrate uh, the ordinances of the church, Believer's Baptism, and in a few moments, uh, the Lord's Supper. So we want to welcome you today. If you're a guest of ours, we would ask you to take out a care card in the pew rack in front of you and Fill it out as completely as possible. We would love to have a record of your attendance with us today. And on the back of that care card uh, for everyone, there is space provided there to fill out a prayer need in your life if you would like the staff uh, praying for your need this week. But again, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Let me go over a few uh, brief announcements before we continue with our worship. Uh, Traditionally, on the 4th of July week, we do not have midweek activities, and that will be the case again this week, so no Wednesday activities. I do want to make you aware that deacon nominations are, are open now. You can pick up a form in the uh, worship center lobby before you leave and begin making it a matter of prayer. Uh, those that you feel God leading you uh, to nominate to serve the next three years in the position of deacon. And so this month, we'll be giving you that opportunity to have part in this process. 
Also, you've seen some of the mission t-shirts uh, that go to help our harvest fund, the proceeds. Uh, some of you may say, well, what's the harvest fund? The harvest fund is the local missions offering that we collect, sending our own people out on mission trips throughout the year to help offset uh, some of the cost. And you've been very generous uh, in the harvest fund and we thank you for that. And by ordering a mission t-shirt, that's a chance also to help uh, supplement that offering. And the deadline will be next week for getting those uh, t-shirts. And so please take care of that uh, today because this will probably be the final order of those going in right now at this current time. And then folks, tonight we have a very exciting opportunity one of our own, Matthew Tucker, uh, when he was born, a part of this church, grew up in the nursery, the preschool area, the children's area, the youth area, and uh, went off into real estate, had a very lucrative real estate career, and, but the whole time, uh, Matt knew that God was uh, calling him to ministry, and Derry and his wife was encouraging him in that because she recognized that as well and some time ago some some months ago he surrendered uh, to full-time ministry he has been doing seminary uh, courses through southern seminary in louisville kentucky and he has been called to his first church to serve as a family pastor of locust grove baptist church in weaverville north carolina up near Asheville. And he will be starting his responsibilities there on August the 1st. And one of the items that they've asked to be taken care of is his ordination. And so you as his home church are taking part in an ordination uh, service tonight. Again, just recognizing here's a young man that so many of you uh, have impacted in your testimony, your example, your, your teaching of him. And we have the privilege tonight to be a part of this service. It'll be at 5 o'clock uh, in here. A very important time for the life of the church. So we would like to ask uh, everyone to come back out on a Sunday evening for this very special time. Uh, on this Lord's Supper Sunday, I do want to begin by reading a scripture as we, we think of our own heart condition before God. David in Psalm 51 says, Have mercy on me. O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Father, today as we gather in your house to worship you, I pray that our hearts would be stilled and that as Psalm 46 says, that we would indeed be still and know that you are God. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts, our, our lives today as only you can through the power of your Spirit. We humble ourselves before you. We call upon your name. And Father, I pray that you would be honored and glorified and worshipped here, here today in this place. That we would be acutely aware that we are in your presence. You're God and we're not. You are sovereign God and holy and worthy of our worship. God, I pray that you would touch each heart here today. Cleanse us. Wash us of our sin and, and make us clean. Forgive us and restore to us the joy of our salvation. God, may you minister to each one here today as only you can do. You know the deepest need of each person. And I pray that you would reach them and, and touch their lives. You're the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Have your way and your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we join together in singing? Sing with me. Oh, beautiful, for spacious skies, for
Would you join me in the pledge to our national flag? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The Bible tells us we are called to be free. But it also says to use that freedom to serve one another humbly and in love. Maybe that's what we're missing in America today. Perhaps it's time we recognize that true independence is found only in a lasting dependence on God. Amen. Second Corinthians 3.17 says, For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom.
Amen. Thank you, choir. Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We've been looking through the Gospel of Mark now for uh, 36 weeks as we journey through what is the shortest Gospel uh, out of the four. And so I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12 this morning and we will begin reading where we left off uh, two weeks ago. Uh, we'll start today in verse 35 and read down through verse 42. And so if you would find that in your copy of the scripture, and when you do, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, please. And we're going to look at the subject matter this morning entitled, Jesus Confronts and Observes. In verse 35, it says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small, uh, two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, sometimes people love to take part in theological debates and wrestling matches. Maybe at some point in time you've been, even been a part of one of these theological debates. Somebody may ask, is Jesus God? Or how do you, re uh, how do you respond to the problem of evil and suffering in the world? Does God exist? How do you know He exists? Or we argue maybe over eschatology in time matters. And we'll get into that beginning next week in Mark chapter 13. But, but debates about eschatology. Or we may argue about Calvinism versus Arminianism. Or whether we are a young earth person or an old earth person. We may argue about spiritual gifts. Matters like this, on and on, we could go with topics that people today love to debate. 
And folks, I bring that up because if you recall where we are in this section of Mark, the religious leaders have been hammering with uh, hammering Jesus over some of the pertinent questions of the day. Some of these theological debate questions of the day. They've been hammering Jesus with these one after the other. Now their motive has been to try and trap Jesus so they can have a reason to accuse him before the authorities and have him put to death. But we know that Jesus has answered all of their questions impeccably and he's confounded the wise. In fact, so much so that verse 34 says that after this, no one would dare to venture and ask him anything. Now I want you to think about that. Because they've confronted Jesus over the greatest commandment. They've confronted him over matters having to do with the resurrection. They've questioned him over taxes and whether they should support Caesar's authority or not. They've confronted Jesus over how he turned the tables of the money changers over. And each and every one of those scenarios, Jesus proved himself far more capable than all of the religious leaders put together. And so they finally decide they've had enough. There's no sense trying to trap him anymore. He's too smart for that. But I want you to notice what happens beginning here in verse 35. It is now Jesus who is going to begin asking them questions. He's going to turn the tables on them. So let's see how they're going to do it. And he's doing this because I want you to remember something. He knows now that his time has come. And so he's going to continue to push the conflict that they have with him. Before, he would tell people not to say certain things about him or not to report about a certain miracle that he had done because his time was not yet. But now it's Passover week. It's the week he's going to be crucified. He knows it's his time. And, and so he keeps the conflict going himself at this point. And, and, and this passage shows us that the religious leaders of Jesus' day really didn't know the scripture. He's going to confront them about their knowledge. And they are going to fail miserably. It's a sad commentary on what the prophet Jeremiah had said. God through Jeremiah said, My people are destroyed over a lack of knowledge. The religious leaders didn't have biblical knowledge in Jeremiah's day. They didn't have it in Jesus' day either. Sad. And because even the leaders didn't know the Bible, they're leading the people astray. And that's a sad thing to see. Now what we're going to learn from our text today is that you can be in all the right positions in life. You can hold all of, uh, all of the right titles, be entrusted with all of the right authority, and still not understand the ways of the Lord. And we see that in the religious leaders. The first thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the questions over timing and the nature of the Messiah. 
Again, it says Jesus taught in the temple. He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself or calls him Lord, so how is he his son? The scribes were wrongly looking for a mere earthly Messiah. That's what you need to understand. They were looking for a mere earthly Messiah. They had misunderstood the Old Testament scriptures about what the Messiah would be like. The Old Testament scriptures that they claimed to be authorities on, they didn't even understand what those Old Testament scriptures said about the nature and the person of the Messiah. They were looking for someone who would simply be born as a direct descendant of David who would immediately overthrow the Romans and set up God's rule from the throne of David in Jerusalem. They weren't even thinking in the categories of the Messiah also being the very Son of God. They weren't thinking of a Messiah who had always existed from eternity past. They should have known these things. And folks, we should know these things today too. I mean, after all, we have the New Testament as well. And and in John's Gospel it says, In the beginning was the Word. That is, when the beginning of time as we know it came around, when creation happened was the Word. In other words, the Word, speaking of Jesus, was already there. He was in the beginning with God. And He was face to face with God. There's never been a time that the Messiah was not. He has eternally existed. And these things were even hinted at in the Old Testament scriptures. Again, scriptures that the leaders of the day felt themselves to be experts on. And so what does Jesus do? He brings Psalm 110 into the picture. Psalm 110 is only one place, just one place that indicates in the Old Testament that the Messiah, when he comes, would be someone who would be from eternity past. The psalm has to do with David. Here's King David, who would have existed centuries before, and and, uh, he said, in paraphrased language, he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Now, you have a problem if you are a scribe in Jesus' day. Because the scribes were thinking like the Jews were thinking. The Jewish way of thinking, you would never say to your son or your grandson or your great-grandson, you would never call one of your descendants Lord. You would not address any descendant of yours with the title Lord. You might refer to an ancestor that way, but never a descendant. This was their way of thinking. 
And so if David said, my Lord, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, then the one David identified as my Lord could not be a descendant of David in terms of coming after David. And yes, Jesus was a descendant of David in terms of his humanity, that is. But Jesus was more than a descendant of David because he also existed before David. So how can David be calling the Messiah Lord if the Messiah simply comes after David? How can David call his Lord the Lord if the Lord is David's son? You see what a brain teaser it is? But I mean it's kind of an obvious question. And it points out that the whole way the scribes are looking at the Messiah was wrong. The whole way they interpreted the Old Testament at certain points was wrong. Here were the supposed experts and they didn't know these things. They've been trying to trap Jesus with gotcha questions. And now Jesus turns the table on them and he's got a gotcha question for them. you got to love this, what he's doing here. And in fact, the scripture says here, the masses that were, that were following Jesus, they heard him gladly. They must have been enjoying now how he was putting the scribes and the Pharisees back on their heels with questions they couldn't answer. Now, now let's think about something, though, that Psalm 110 brings up. Where is Jesus now? If the Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your feet, where must Jesus be now? If Psalm 110 is speaking of Jesus when Jesus came, which it is, and if God says to him, sit here at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your feet, where must Jesus be today? He's at the right hand of the Father. Because you see, the Bible says after the resurrection of Jesus, he ascended back to the Father. Just go back and read Acts chapter 1 to see this. You can read about it in Hebrews chapter 1 as well. Also Romans chapter 8 verses 31 to 34. And then in 1 John chapter 2 verse 1, uh, John says the Son is at the right hand of the Father and He is our advocate. All of these passages of Scripture say He's now at the Father's right hand and He is our advocate and He is our intercessor. He's representing us there before the Father. All of those are some wonderful texts. Jesus is at the Father's side. He's making intercession for us. He's praying for us. And as Psalm 110 goes on to say, the Father is in process of putting all of his enemies under his feet. You know, Paul said in Philippians 2 that one of these days, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The scribes thought they were so smart. But if they were really as smart as they thought, they would have known that this was the nature of the Messiah. That he wasn't just a human who would 
be created at some point in time and then would die. He's always existed and always will exist. Now, why is this important today? You say, preacher, okay, I get it, but, but so what? Folks, we need to understand today that Jesus is a man, but he's more than a man. He's the God-man. Both natures of Christ, his human side and his divine side, are very important. As a man, he understands your weakness. He identifies with you. But as God, he's more than a mere man. He is the sinless son of God. And there's never been a time that he didn't exist. He's sovereign God. And he understands your weaknesses and my weaknesses. And he's able to come to our aid. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. And he represents us before the Father. He's able to save you. And he's able to keep you. He's the only one who can. He's able to give you wisdom and strength. He's able to give you help when human power is useless. He identifies with us being made like us. But he is more than this at the same time. He's God. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. In other words, he's all that we need and, and more. And you know, during his life... He, during his earthly life, he actively obeyed the Father and he passively obeyed. He actively kept all of the laws and the commandments and was perfect and sinless so he could go to the cross and be our sin bearer. He never sinned even at one point and he passively obeyed. He voluntarily laid down his life and allowed wicked men to crucify him on a cross and he did not resist what are you looking for most in life I dare say most of humanity today is hoping that somehow or another they can be made right with God can I be forgiven can I can I be reconciled to a holy God can I have peace with God can I know that that after I die I'm going to be okay that I will be in the presence of God can I, can I know these things? Well, folks, that again, that only happens through Jesus. Do you need wisdom and strength in your trials? Yes, you need that now. He's your shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And he loves you. He loves his sheep and he laid down his life for his sheep. You see folks, what God is offering in Christ is far more than just religion. In religion you have to keep a code of some sort. Some people try to record more mentally. They sort of try to record more checks in the good column than in the bad column to try to see how good or bad they are and can they be good enough to be saved. But what God does is offer us a relationship with himself through his eternal son made flesh. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In other words, folks, God loves you enough to identify with you in the flesh and experience everything you face without sinning himself. And because he came to us in the flesh, he's not distant. He's not aloof. 
But he remained sinless so he could go to the cross and die for your sin. He's not out of touch with us. And he loves us enough that he's done this. He's identified with us. And yet because of his sinless nature, he was able to go to the cross and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. You see what the scribes were trying to do, like so many even in the world today, is is they're trying... To, to reach up to God somehow or another through their own efforts and, and the keeping of the law to try to uh, pull God down, so to speak, so, that, so they can rise up to meet Him through their efforts. But what God has done in Christ is He's reached down to us that we might be lifted up to be with Him one day in all eternity. Christianity is about what God has done to save us. It's not about us. It's not about trying to keep codes or laws or, you know, commandments or whatever. It's what God has done. He's come to us in a perfect way. In His Son who is fully human and yet fully divine at the same time. Neither nature undoes the, uh, undoes the other nature. He's the perfect God-man. Do you understand that? And have you come to Him on His terms? As you come to Him on His terms, what He offers is eternal life. This is what the scribes in Jesus' day did not understand. Now, the second thing I want you to notice was comments on pride and judgment. Comments on pride and judgment. It says, in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. I want you to notice what Jesus says here. Beware. I mean, it's a word of warning. He's saying to everybody, look out. Look out for who? Look out for the scribes. Why? Because of the type of men they are. They are proud men who are really fond of themselves. They like to walk around in the garments of the clergy at the time, the authorities at the time. They love their their fancy attire, these long flowing robes. You see, the robe of a scribe was very distinctive. It had a certain air about it. They liked all the, the... respectful greetings in the marketplaces they liked the chief seats in the synagogues and at banquets they wanted the places of honor and I want you to see what Jesus is saying about that here these guys were wanting to be treated almost in a kingly type fashion they were after the admiration of the people And they wanted to exercise a certain kind of authority over the people. But Jesus, by way of contrast, how had he come? He had come as a servant. I mean, folks, think about in the incarnation. God's Son, who's always existed with the Father. Think of of that heavenly glory that he laid aside without ceasing to be 
uh, any part of his nature. He laid aside that heavenly glory and he came to a sin-stained world. And he came as the servant of all and the last of all. And he came to die for you and for me. But what are these guys doing? These guys are strutting around like they own the world or something. And they're proud and they want attention from everybody. And they want everybody's admiration. They're just the opposite in spirit from anything that Jesus was. Do we have any religious pride going on today? Sure we do. Connie and I used to love to go to some of these conventions, uh, the religious conventions and all. And, and man, you could see it. Some of these mega church guys, you could tell the way they were strutting around. They were in love with themselves. I mean, these, some of these guys had perfected the art of being able to strut sitting down. And we'd say, look, here, here, I mean, there was a group of them. You could, you could identify them year after year. Look, look, here they come. And, you know, they're sort of here and everybody else is over there. And, man, they just had this air about themselves. They were fond of themselves and what all they had accomplished. But, folks, a Christian has nothing to brag about other than Jesus. We are nothing without Jesus and can do nothing without him. And if he came as a servant, what's your attitude to be? And what's my attitude to be? We're to be servants. We're to go out of our way to be servants of God. Don't ever assign celebrity status to anybody. Don't ever assign celebrity status to yourself. You know, there are so many people in our world today, they're enamored with celebrities and they want to go online and and follow them and, and see what all they're doing. Well, you know what? Most celebrities, I dare say most of them, I mean, obviously this is a matter I don't know because I don't know their heart, but I would assume most of them are lost as a goose and on their way to an eternity without God. And yet these are the people that so many in the world today use as role models. Why do we do some of the stuff that we do? Again, God's children have nothing to boast about other than Christ. These guys were so proud, and Jesus was pointing out this to the the multitudes. Now, look at what else he said about them. They devour widows' houses. Because, you see, the scribes were not allowed to receive payment for being a scribe, at least not from the temple treasury. They, They had to raise their own support. And so what would they do oftentimes? They would rub shoulders with some of the mightiest and wealthiest for the purpose of getting into their pocketbooks. And sometimes they would go after the most vulnerable And the easiest targets they could find. And then meanwhile in the synagogue or temple services they would pray these long formal prayers. Just so they could seem religious and pious and spiritual. They were doing it for show. Jesus is not condemning long prayers in general. What he is condemning is any prayer that is done for show. 
And notice what he says about them, the confrontation. Uh, he, he says, they will receive the greater condemnation. They thought they would have a front row seat in heaven one day, and Jesus is speaking in language that these guys aren't even going to make it. Folks, it's a reminder to us just what James says in the book of James. James chapter 3, be not many teachers because as such you're going to receive the greater judgment. You and I are going to be accountable for what God has allowed us to know. And what God has allowed us to have. These scribes in Jesus' day had been entrusted with the very words of God. The very law, laws of God. The common man didn't even have scripture in, in their hands. Because they didn't have that many scrolls. The scribes were the authorities possessed all this wisdom from God in, 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 in his word. And they were to be teaching this to the people. They were to be good stewards of it. And yet they had turned the whole thing on its head. And, and they were making too much of themselves. And they weren't being accountable for what God had entrusted to them. They were to be spiritual leaders teaching the people and helping the people to know God and because they weren't doing that they were going to receive the greater condemnation folks think about us what's been entrusted to you how much of the things of God do you know about do you have a Bible in your hand do you have a Bible at home you've probably got a number of copies of the Bible right in America, for now anyway, we have the freedom of worship. We can come to church. We can learn about God. We can speak to others of our faith. I mean, there is so much that has been entrusted to us. So much that God has allowed us to be a part of. What are we doing with what God has entrusted to us? What are you doing with what God's entrusted to you? Because you're going to be held accountable for it one day. To whom much is given, much is required. How are you doing with that? Because folks, in the eyes of the world, we've all, in, in a place like this, we've been entrusted with much. What are we doing with what God has given us? Well, the third thing I want you to notice here, giving examined. Giving examined, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had all she had to live on. Some of Jesus' strongest words that he ever spoke address the issue of money and giving. Two topics today people don't want you to talk about. Many people today don't want you to talk about hell and they don't want you to talk about giving. Guess, guess which two topics Jesus spoke on more than any other topics that he addressed? Money and hell. Seriously. 
And he's addressing money here and, and, and giving. And remember how he said in the Sermon on the Mount that we're to be laying up our treasure in heaven where moth and rust doesn't corrupt and thieves don't break in and steal? He went on to say there, wherever, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is going to be also. Remember these things he spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount and how we're to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Folks, our giving definitely reflects where our heart is. What if our checkbooks, of course I realize nobody hardly writes paper checks anymore, but let's pretend a minute that we could and somebody could open your check registry and see what all you give to. What would the world be able to say is your priority in life? Because that's exactly what the scripture says. If you can look at your, your money, it, you see that's a very measurable thing, a very tangible thing. If people can look at your giving, my giving, our money, and what we're doing with our resources, that's a pretty good indicator of where our heart is. And, and Jesus points out here too that, that sometimes the poor actually are more generous than the rich. It's not just a matter of total dollars given, but the proportion to your overall wealth. And the motive to which you're giving, Jesus is addressing all of that here. Now I want you to remember it's Passover week. Jerusalem is flooded with people. The population would have been about ten times what it normally was. And offerings were very much a part of Passover week. You had all the animal offerings that were, that were taking place. You had all the money offerings. And so what's Jesus decide he's going to do? He's going to take a chair and just kind of sit back and watch in the temple. You, again, you've got to love this. He just decides he's going to sit back and he's going to observe. He's going to watch people. He's going to watch what they're doing when they're coming in the temple and, and how they're giving. And he notices how the rich people were giving and the large sums they were, they were putting in. You know, in Matthew 6, again, he said they would even sometimes go to great lengths when the rich would put in these large sums uh, they would do something to make some kind of big fanfare of it, how much they were giving so everybody could see them giving a huge amount. You know, it's interesting to see at times what the rich give. Sometimes you can go online and look about politicians, and I, I've done that before, and, and you're, you're amazed, both sides of the aisle, how generous some of them are, and you're amazed, again, both sides of the aisle, what skin flint some of them are. Some of these very wealthy politicians. What about us? What about the evangelical church today? Do you know the evangelical church today, and, and the figure I'm about to give you is quickly becoming outdated. It's going way down even from here. We only give about 2.3% of our resources. In fact, the evangelical church now is giving less than Christians did during the days of the Great Depression. Think about that. 
the days of the Great Depression where there were bread lines and people didn't have money. People were desperate. Christians gave more of their resources percentage-wise during the Great Depression than we do today with all the abundance we have in 2023. There's a study recently uh, published by LifeWay. And in this study they said, and I quote here, Generosity is a mark of the Christian life, but most Christians are seriously missing the mark. Now they published the study, but the study, the research was done by a company called Gray Matter Research and Consulting and Infinity Concepts. They found that 83% of churchgoers today say tithing is a biblical command, and yet they found that rarely does our belief translate into practice. They said one-fifth of evangelicals give nothing to church or any charity. One-fifth. And looking at the previous year, the article was dated January of 2022. Uh, and, and considering only church giving, more than a quarter gave zero in a whole year. The average evangelical who did give gave $1,923 to church, $622 to other charities for a total of $2,545 over a month. Median given was said to be more accurate of the typical giver over the last year. Again, looking at 12 months in the evangelical church across America, it said the, the median giving was $350 to church and $50 to other charity for a total of $400 that people gave. $400. By the way, if you're a guest of ours here today, our congregation can tell you, I'm, I never preach on I don't. I've been here 25 years, and I've probably preached on money and giving maybe two times. I'm, I'm dead serious. But I thought, you know, this is, a, this is a good text to talk about it, isn't it? Because that's what he's talking about here. Boy, some people must be amazing at living off of $4,000 total income a year. If giving is $400, some people are amazing stewards. Malachi 3.3, 3, what, what's Scripture say? Tithing, one-tenth. That means it's proportional. It's not just total gifts, one-tenth of your resources. Somebody says, yeah, but you know, that was Old Testament. Well, what did Jesus say about that? In Matthew 23, 23, Matthew 23, 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and, and uh, cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What's Jesus telling believers? Make sure you're doing the more important things, love and justice and mercy, without neglecting what? The verse was talking about tithing. <clears throat> Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 talks about giving. How we need to give as God has prospered us. We need to give cheerfully because God loves a cheerful giver. 
He goes on to say, we need to understand if we sow little, we reap little. If we sow much, we reap much. And there's also a corporate application to that. So, so much, like if you put a lot of missionaries out there who are sharing the gospel around the world, there'll be a bigger harvest of souls. So corporately too, sowing much, reaping much, sowing little, reaping little. Folks, the Bible is saying that you and I are to be good stewards. God has given us so much. And he only asks for a certain portion of that in return. It's a matter of obedience to him. Now the fourth thing I want you to see is giving applauded. Verses 43 and 44. What, what got Jesus' attention here? Was it the rich people giving large sums? No, it was this little poor widow. You know, judging by the standards of the world, I can almost guarantee you nobody in the temple that day probably paid any attention whatsoever to this little poor widow. Nobody would have thought much about that. But Jesus did. And what did Jesus say? She gave more than all the others because she gave out of her poverty. This is a destitute lady and she gave all that she had. She was giving more than the rich people in Jesus' day. You know, somebody asked Howard Hughes one time, one of the richest men in the world, how much is enough? You know what Howard Hughes said? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Greed. She gave more than all the others. You know what this tells me, folks? This tells me that truly the biggest giver in Pitts Baptist Church may be some little elderly widow lady that nobody would ever pay any attention to her whatsoever. But proportionately, she may be the greatest giver among us because she gives out of her poverty. And you know what? Jesus applauded that. He applauded her generous nature and her generous spirit. And he held her up as an example to his believers. And the Holy Spirit has recorded this down through the ages for all believers to see who it is that Jesus held up as an example of giving. Somebody with a generous heart who even gives out of their poverty. Some takeaways here. I want you to see, first of all, this morning, the Lord Jesus is divine and human. As divine, he is eternal and all-powerful. As human, he relates to you and your needs. A second takeaway, we are all to be humble servants of the Lord who only glory in the Lord. There is no room for pride in a believer. A third takeaway, we're not to make a show out of our giving. Our motives are to be pure in our giving. And lastly, God recognizes and commends generous, proportionate giving, not simply total gifts. 
The gifts the world gets the most excited over may not be the gifts that God is the most pleased by. Would you stand please? Before we go into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper together, I want to give anybody here an opportunity, if God's been working on your heart and drawing you to Jesus, you know, you might say, you know, Pastor, I've been kind of like the scribes, religion, what I can do to reach up to God. But I'm understanding it's not about my efforts of reaching up. He's reached down to me in Christ. And I need to follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I want to ask you to come forward this morning. One of our pastors is going to pray with you. And you can confess your faith in Christ. And we'll schedule your baptism for the way these four were baptized at the beginning of the service today. You can take a public stand for Christ. Maybe others looking for a church home. Still others, something in one of these stories that's touched your heart. That you realize you need to be a servant. Perhaps there's too much pride in your life. Maybe God's convicted you in the area of your giving. Whatever it is he's spoken to you about through his word. The invitation time is a time for you to do business with God. While we sing together. If you need somebody to pray with you, we're here to pray with you, okay? Let's sing together. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the seated please.
please, I'm going to ask the deacons if they would come forward. You know, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said that as we observe the Lord's Supper, we need to first of all examine ourselves. He spoke of some in that congregation coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. They weren't right with God. And there was unconfessed sin in their life. And uh, they were partaking. And he went on to explain to them how they were actually partaking, bringing God's judgment upon themselves. And he cautioned that congregation that before you partake, let a person first of all examine themselves. Can I ask you to bow in prayer just a moment before we continue? And examine yourself before God. Is there unrepented of sin in your life? The Lord's Supper is for baptized believers. Is that you? Is there something you need to get right in your heart before we go further today? Please take both elements at, at once. You'll see both in the trays.
I mentioned it in the message about how proud they were in contrast to Jesus. In Philippians 2, Paul said, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, think of his attitude, leaving the ivory palaces of heaven to come to this earth for you and me. He knew only perfection and light and the worship of the heavenly angels and he came to this earth an earth stained by sin he came here to die for your sin and my sin and in the process too he's asking followers of his that we would be like him that we would be humble servants obviously we can't die for one another in the sense of forgiving sin only he could do that but we're to even be willing to lay down our lives for one another and to be servants for one another as we come to the Lord's table let's remind ourselves that this is to be the humble attitude of his followers and we're reminded in the Lord's Supper of the price that he paid for our forgiveness and that's why the scripture says as often as we partake of this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because we're proclaiming that only through his sacrifice are we forgiven. We're telling the world, it's not what you do, how hard you try, it's what he's done for us in Christ. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son. As 2 Corinthians 9 says, He is the unspeakable gift that you have given. In other words, Father, you've given the greatest. You've given the best. You gave your Son. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for laying down your life for our sins for shedding your blood, 
for the new covenant in your blood. That for Jews and Gentiles, with all the barriers, the walls being torn down, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, folks can come to you, Father, through your Son, Jesus. He's the means, He's the one in, in which in whom we have forgiveness. He's the one that ushers us into the presence of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice. And as we leave this place today, may we do so in the spirit in which you laid down your life. May we humble ourselves before others and speak of you to others that they might come to know you as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have a